0: One of the fun and scary things about preaching through the Word of God verse by verse is that you can't skip the tough passages. That's fun because it causes you to wrestle with and think through and labor with the whole counsel of God. But it's scary because you have to comment on things that are difficult to understand. You have to make statements on things. You have to give your interpretation, your take on passages, whether you feel confident or not. So it's both fun and scary to preach through Scripture verse by verse. Well, I say all that to say this. That is exactly how I feel as we come to the text we're going to consider together in this study. Let's turn together to the Gospel of John chapter 2. And you will see why I say that this is a fun passage to wrestle with, but a scary one to comment on as we work our way through it. John chapter 2. Please follow along as I read the final three verses of this great chapter. Verse 23. Now when he, the he of course is Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover... During the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, at first glance, these verses may seem to be fairly simple and uncomplicated But as you think through them more closely, you begin to discover that such is not the case. Many questions come to mind from these three short verses. The first question that comes to mind, at least for me, is were these individuals saved? Were they genuine believers? Were they children of God? Whatever term you want to use. And if not, if your inclination is to say no, then what does verse 23 mean when it says they believed in his name? Then if you read that and say, oh, okay, yeah, I see that. Well, maybe they were believers. Well, then if they were genuine believers, why did not Jesus commit himself to them? Why did he choose not to commit himself to them? What was it that Jesus saw in them that caused him not to commit to them? Here's another question that comes to mind. What kind of faith is this that is based on signs? All of these questions come to mind, and maybe others for you, as you begin to ponder this text closely and examine it thoroughly. So in this message, I want us to wrestle with these questions and see if we can come to some type of resolution. As I mentioned, the first and most basic question we must deal with in my opinion is the question were the individuals mentioned in this passage genuinely saved were they truly converted were they children of god were they real believers the answer to that question is not as simple as it seems as i was studying this passage and as i was preparing and doing my research i consulted 16 different commentators and pastors, and Bible teachers. And the unanimous answer to the question, were these real believers, the unanimous answer was no. The individuals mentioned in this passage were not genuine believers. Their explanation went something like this. Here's a quote from one of them. Quote, the individuals referred to in this passage were not genuinely converted but they just exercised a superficial and inadequate faith based on signs. That is why Jesus did not commit himself to them. He knew their hearts, and he could see that they weren't genuine End quote." That is the overwhelmingly popular interpretation of this passage. I personally believe that interpretation of this passage is incorrect. So I want to explain why I believe that view is incorrect, and I also want to explain what I feel is the proper interpretation of this passage. Now, even in saying this, you don't know what you know how I'm feeling inside here. This is this is scary. When you read 16 different Bible teachers, pastors, many of whom you really respect, and you go cross grain, you start start feeling some fear and trepidation. So I certainly don't want to come across as condescending towards other men who hold the opposing view because they are men I respect highly. In fact, if I were to mention some of the names that I read and consulted, they would be recognized instantly by many of you. But I just can't accept that interpretation of this passage, and here's why. Notice the little phrase in verse 23, Many believed in his name. Now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. That is, in my opinion, the key phrase in this passage because it is a key phrase in John's gospel. Let me show you just two examples. One in the chapter that precedes this one and one in the chapter that follows This one. Sandwiched in between. We have this statement here in chapter 2, verse 23. But back up to chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12, a very famous verse in the prologue, the opening part of John's gospel, where he basically gives an overview of all that he's going to say and teach. And he says in verse 12, But as many as received him, of course referring to the Lord Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Here in this verse, and it's a key verse in John's gospel, I'm sure many of you have this verse memorized. Here John says that a man or a woman becomes a child of God by believing in the name of Jesus. So how do you become a Christian? Well, first John, I mean John 1:12 tells us If that's the only verse in the Bible we had, it would be enough to tell us how to become a child of God. How do you become a Christian? By receiving Christ. The first part of the verse says, which is the same thing as the end of the verse. It's just a synonym. or saying it uh, a different way. It's the same as believing in His name. Both mean the same thing. Receiving Christ, believing in His name. So that's what John says in chapter 1, verse 12. And we have the same phrase in 2.23. We'll skip it for just a moment. But go to chapter 3, the chapter that follows the the, the verse that we are wrestling with in chapter 2. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. You know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So according to this verse, verse 18, how do we enter into a right relationship with Jesus? Well, the end of the verse says that those who are condemned are those who have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So turn that around to the positive. How is does a person uh, get into or become in, get into a right relationship with God by believing in jesus name, or as John says it, how does a man stand condemned before Jesus by not believing in his name? so again, in the chapter just pre- preceding the one we 're wrestling with we 're wrestling with chapter two verse twenty three but in the chapter just preceding it, we are told by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that You become a child of God by receiving Christ or believing in his name. And then we're told in chapter 3 that if you don't believe in his name, then you stand condemned and turn that around. If you do believe in his name, you're not condemned. So we have two statements sandwiched in between. We have the exact same phrase. We could add chapter 20 where we find the purpose statement verses of John's Gospel. John 20, 30 and 31 says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So there John says that he recorded some of the signs of Jesus so that people would believe in Jesus So that people would believe in his name. And when people believe in Jesus, they have life in his name. So with that in mind, look at chapter 2 again. And look at verse 23. And verse 23 says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Now if the issue of salvation is believing in the name of Jesus and we've just seen that it is, then the individuals mentioned here in verse 23 were saved. They were genuinely converted. They were believers. They were children of God, whatever term you want to use. You have to be consistent with John. You can't say that some who believe in the name of Jesus have eternal life, but some who believe in the name of Jesus don't have eternal life. I mean, either you do or you don't. But that is exactly what people do with this passage here in chapter 2. John 1.12 says eternal life is obtained by believing in the name of Jesus. Now think about this. Think if you were just reading through John for the first time. And you come to chapter 1, verse 12, and you come to that monumental verse, and you say, wow, that's a key verse for the rest of the book. John says here in the prologue that if you believe in the name of Jesus, you have eternal life. So I'm going to be excited to read his gospel to see who believes in the name of Jesus. And you come to chapter 2, the very next chapter, and you read about a group of people who believe in his name. What would you conclude? They're believers. They did what chapter 1, verse 12 says. They believed. And that is the key word in John's gospel, by the way. He uses some form of the word "pistuo," the verb believe, or pistis, uh, the noun form. He uses some form of that word 98 times in this gospel. The word believe means to trust, to commit to, and according to verse 23 of chapter 2, that's what these individuals did. Those who don't believe that the individuals in chapter 2, verse 23 are genuinely saved have to somehow get around this. In fact, one man I read on this passage titled this section. Now, are you ready for this? Unbelieving Believers. That was the title. Unbelieving Believers. And he said this I quote, they, this, this is his exact quote They were unsaved believers. What is that? They were unsaved believers. John knows of no such thing. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust him, if you commit to him, then you become a child of God, John 1.12 says. And that's what we have here in verse 23. Now the reason so many people, I'm I'm really stressing this to, to make it seem obvious, but it's not so obvious, uh, or else every everyone would agree that these are believers. But the reason so many people don't accept the fact that the individuals in verse 23 are genuinely saved is because of what follows. Not because of what is stated necessarily in verse 23, but because Jesus did not commit himself to them. So the typical response is this. Quote, These individuals weren't genuinely saved because... Their faith was a shallow faith based on miracles. That's a quote. And that is the consensus view of those who say this group of individuals, this group of people that they were not genuinely saved. They say, well, it was just superficial faith because John tells us here in verse 23, they believed in his name when they saw the signs. So it's just shallow faith, superficial, not genuine faith. But listen. Those who reason like that fail to realize that if faith based on miracles is inadequate faith, then you might as well throw out the entire Gospel of John. Why do I say that? Because John tells us in chapter 20 that he recorded the miracles of Jesus so that we would believe in Jesus. So we would have a basis to believe in Jesus, a reason, evidence Turn over there for just a moment. I'll show you. I quoted these verses a couple minutes ago, but I want you to see them for yourself. John 20. These verses are the purpose statement verses of John's gospel. Almost all commentators, when they start to unpack the gospel of John, will take you here first to say, here's the starting point, because John tells us why he wrote his gospel and what his purpose was and how he laid it out and all of that. So here it is. Here's the summary, John's purpose, verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. That is way more than what I've recorded here. In fact, as you know, John will say over in chapter 21, using hyperbole, that Jesus did so many miracles, so many signs, that if all of them were recorded one by one, I suppose the world would not be able to contain the books. He just did so many. So that's what he's saying here. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So that, here's the purpose clause. John, why did you write this gospel? Why did you write this gospel revolving around seven key miracles in the life and ministry of Jesus? Why did you record those? What was your specific purpose? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John purposely recorded the miracles of Jesus in his gospel so that others would come to believe in Jesus. Therefore, you can't really put down the faith of the individuals mentioned in chapter 2, verse 23, just because it was a faith based on signs. Now, hear this. That's not to say that faith based on signs is the most commendable kind of faith. Notice what Jesus said to Thomas in verse 29. Just back up one verse. Jesus said to him, you remember Thomas said, I'm I'm not going to believe unless I can, you know, feel the scars. Put my hand in those wounds of Jesus. And then Jesus granted him the opportunity to do that. In verse 29, or verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now notice here, Jesus didn't question the validity of Thomas' faith. However, he did say that there is a special blessedness ascribed to those who don't need visible proofs to elicit faith. But that's not to say That faith based on the signs of Jesus is a faith that doesn't save, a faith that is inadequate, a faith that is superficial. So in light of all of this evidence, it is quite clear, at least in my mind, that the individuals mentioned in chapter 2, verse 23, were genuine believers. They did what John says you have to do to be a child of God. They believed in Jesus' name. Well, that raises a question then why did Jesus choose not to commit himself to them? Before we answer that question, I think it's important that we back up a little bit and remind ourselves that this kind of decision by Jesus was not uncommon. Many times in his earthly ministry, Jesus chose not to commit himself to a group of genuine believers. Now, Maybe that sounds strange to you. We we need to define what it means to commit himself to them. But we'll unpack that. But I just want to make the statement there were many times in his earthly ministry, Jesus chose not to commit himself to a group of genuine believers. Let me give you just one example in John chapter 4. So go back a few pages, a few chapters to John chapter 4. You're probably familiar with this story. Here in chapter 4, Jesus leads a Samaritan woman to faith in himself. You remember the interchange by Jacob's well, and and he brings her to salvation and to faith. We're going to pick up the story in verse 28. It says, Then the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out to the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him to eat, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So this woman goes, she starts talking to the man, and they, she says, you got to come and see this guy. He told me everything about myself. How does he know this stuff? How does he know me? So they start coming. Down in verse 39, it says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. Stay with them. That's an interesting phrase. Commit to us here. Stay here. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And then verse 43, now after two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. He's gone. And we don't have any record that Jesus ever came back to minister to these Samaritan believers. He's gone. So here's a group of Samaritans who placed their faith in Jesus, but he only stayed there two days to be with them. So let's use John's wordy from chapter 2. He chose not to commit himself to them any longer than that. Two days, that's what he gave them. And then he moved on. He had more work to be done farther north in Galilee. Verse 43 tells us he departed and went to Galilee. And remember what we have seen in our studies of Matthew and Mark, that Jesus spent like two years in Galilee. So if you talk about making a commitment to something, he made a commitment to Galilee. He was there in Capernaum. He was there with his disciples. He was committed to being there. He wasn't committed to being in Samaria. And as we saw in chapter 2, he wasn't committed to being in Jerusalem. He visited Jerusalem at Passover, at the holidays. He wasn't committed to being there. He was committed to Galilee. So Jesus chose not to commit himself to this group of Samaritan believers. So my point is, it was not an unusual thing for Jesus to choose not to make a long-term commitment to a group of genuine believers. In fact, think about this. About the only group of believers he chose to to spend excessive time with was the 12. In the book Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman says this, and I quote, Why did Jesus deliberately concentrate his life upon comparatively so few people? Why did he not then capitalize upon his opportunities to enlist a mighty army of believers to take the world by storm? Jesus was a realist. The multitudes were potentially ready to follow him, but Jesus individually could not possibly give them the personal care they needed. His only hope was to get men imbued with his life who would do it for him. Hence, he concentrated himself upon those who were to be the beginning of this leadership. Though he did what he could to help the multitudes, he had to devote himself primarily to a few men rather than the masses. This was the genius of his strategy, end quote." This was the genius of his strategy. So you see, it was not an unusual thing for Jesus to choose not to make a long-term commitment to a group of genuine believers. But the question still remains in our text, why did Jesus choose not to commit himself to the believers mentioned in John 2:23? Let's go back to that text and see if we can get a clue from the text itself. So verse 23 tells us that when Jesus went to Jerusalem at Passover, and he always went there for Passover. In fact, you can can analyze his ministry around the Passovers because he always made sure to be in Jerusalem at Passover. But he didn't stay there. He wasn't committed to being there. He just went there for ministry and left. So when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, and they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all, And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew about this group. Now, we're not told what he knew, but just that he did know. He didn't need anyone to tell him about the the lives of these new believers, their circumstances. He already knew. He already knew all those details. And he knew... Evidently, something he knew indicated that these new believers were not ready for fuller disclosures from the one they had just trusted. Now understand something, please. It's not that Jesus didn't love these new believers. Because obviously he did. But they obviously weren't ready for the same type of discipleship process that Peter was ready for, and Andrew, and Nathaniel, and Philip, and John, Jesus knew that he had only so much time to do the work of the Father. And he knew that the day was coming when he would have to leave and leave the work of his Father to some men, some group. They had to carry on. Therefore, he invested his time in the lives of those who were ready to excel spiritually. That's why Jesus committed himself to the twelve And chose not to commit himself to so many other believers. By the way, that is an important principle for ministry today. For those in spiritual leadership, shepherds, elders, pastors, missionaries. This is a very important principle of ministry. When it comes to discipling people, when it comes to thinking about the day when you leave the ministry to someone else, it's important to invest your time in those who are really ready to learn and progress. Now, it's not that you neglect others. It's not that you are unkind to others. It's not that you put down or criticize others. No. It's just that you only have so much time and you need to invest it spiritually in the lives of those who are receptive and who, by the best of your estimation, will be, the, the best you can estimate, will be the ones who are ready to carry on the work. Of course, we don't have the insight Jesus had. But the principle still remains today for us if we say we want to live like Jesus lived and, and minister like Jesus ministered. Jesus knew about these new believers. And he could see they weren't ready for the same type of discipleship process that others were ready for. They they evidently weren't ready to, to get a move on it quite yet. But why? Why weren't they? What what was it about these believers? What was it about them or their circumstances? Well, we can't be dogmatic at this point because John doesn't specifically state it here. But I do think John gives us some clues and elsewhere in his gospel, even more information that can lead us to some answers. Notice that verse 23 tells us that these new believers were in Jerusalem. That, in my opinion, is a very key geographical designation. They were in Jerusalem. And remember, Jesus had just cleansed the temple. We're looking at verses 23 through 25, but we dare not divorce them from what just took place. Verses 12 through 22 record Jesus' first cleansing of the temple, which means Jesus wasn't a very popular man in Jerusalem at this time. He wasn't very popular. But in spite of that, in spite of that, these Jews still believed in him, which was commendable. They were swimming upstream, going against the, the current. And that decision would not have been very popular at this time. The Gospel of John makes it very clear that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem tried to squelch any open allegiance to Jesus. In fact, as we saw when we looked at the story of Lazarus, they even tried to kill Lazarus because he was just from a town, Bethany, on the Mount of Olives right next to Jerusalem because they didn't want any more evidence. They didn't want any more people believing in Jesus. So to, to be a believer in Jesus in Jerusalem at this time would have been to experience a lot of heat, to use a phrase. Therefore, it is very likely that these new believers were Christians who felt the pressure, and maybe they didn't have the courage of their convictions. Maybe they weren't willing to be identified as a follower of Jesus. Now, where do I get that idea from? I get it from several passages in John's Gospel. The first example of this occurs in the very next verse in John. We have a chapter break at this point, right after these three verses we're considering. But when John wrote it, there was no chapter break. And I want you to notice the very next thing he goes into. He says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. At this time, Nicodemus wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he certainly was interested. He was intrigued. He knew there was something unique. Teacher, there's something unique. Nobody could do these miracles if, if God wasn't with you. However, without reading too much into the text, the implication of the text is that Nicodemus didn't want to be identified with Jesus or openly associate with Jesus, so he came at night. I mean, he's a member of the Pharisees, the group that opposed Jesus. And yet he's willing to say, man, there's something unique about this man. He's not going to do that openly. He came at night. It seems that Nicodemus did eventually believe in Jesus, but his courage was slow in developing. Look at chapter 7 of this same gospel, John 7, verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them. Now you can see Nicodemus is trying to stand up here. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Boy, look at how he gets shot down. They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. End of conversation. Here, Nicodemus wanted to stand up for Jesus, but his effort was squelched, and it seems he just dropped the issue. But eventually, Nicodemus had the courage to be identified with Jesus as he helped Joseph of Arimathea bury the body of Jesus. Look at chapter 19 of this gospel. John chapter 19. Verse 38, it says, After this, that is, after the crucifixion, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Don't miss that. He's a disciple. This is he believed. But he was a secret one for fear of the Jews. Ask Pilate. Pilate. That he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. That's pretty bold. To be willing at this point to be identified. To take this one. Give him a burial. Because the the attitude of the Jewish leaders would have been, let him rot. We don't don't really care about this man. He's the deceiver of the people. Misleads the people. But Joseph of Arimathea steps forward. And then verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus finally stepped forward to be identified with Jesus. It was in his death. It took a while. But eventually, they stepped forward. And John mentions several individuals throughout his gospel who were believers in Jesus, but didn't want to make that public because of fear of the Jews. Look at chapter 12, another example. Go back to chapter 12, verse 37. It says, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And the way John words that is like, well, they should have, although he had done so many signs, which should have been enough evidence to convince them, they didn't believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. So John says they would not believe when they should have, and then eventually they could not believe, because God's judicial blindness set in for their refusal to believe when they should have believed. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So John, in these verses, tells about the vast majority of the people in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the South, who refused to believe in Jesus. But, watch this, he contrasts that with some who did believe in Jesus. Verse 42, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but. Because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Here was another group of believers who didn't have the courage of their convictions. Now listen, before you say, oh. Well, the, how, how can you say they're true believers? No true believer is going to be ashamed like that and be worried about being unsynagogued. Do you know Simon Peter? You ever heard of him? Three times, afraid to be identified with Jesus and said with curses, call, being, calling down curses on his head, I don't even know this man. Don't you dare assume that a genuine believer can't be afraid to confess Christ. Here was a group of believers who didn't have the courage of their convictions. They weren't willing at this time to be identified as a follower of Jesus. And this goes on today. There are Christians who don't want their fellow employees to know about their commitment to Christ. There are college students who don't want to be too open about their commitment to Christ. There are junior high and high school students who don't want to be identified as a follower of Jesus. They're afraid they'll be teased, made fun of, marginalized. The same kind of thing went on in the first century when Jesus was present. It's things, you know, things change and things stay the same. This is is a pressure that believers feel, that believers experience. And I believe that's what's going on in chapter 2. That would explain why Jesus did not commit himself to the new believers in Jerusalem, but. He did commit himself to the Galilean disciples. At least the Galilean disciples had the courage to openly associate with Jesus. Now eventually, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea gained courage to be publicly identified with Jesus. And it seems that many of the Jerusalem Christians eventually did also. How do we know that? Because John knew of their faith. How can John write this here in chapter 12? How did he know that many believed in him? Well, the only way he would know is that eventually they come out about it. They, they, they make it known. And so John learns about it and puts it in his gospel. But what a tragedy. What a tragedy to lose all that time that could have been used for spiritual growth. What a tragedy to be described with the words of verse 43. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus knew about those new believers in John chapter 2. And he could see they weren't ready for aggressive discipleship yet. Therefore, he didn't commit himself to them. My guess is that there are probably, probably some Christians just like this present here. And what I mean is you believe in Jesus, you really do, and you know Jesus. But you aren't willing to take a stand with Jesus are willing to take a stand for Jesus. You aren't willing to be identified as a follower of Jesus. 2 Timothy 1:8 says, "Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord." Hear that verse. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Why did Paul say that to Timothy? You want an obvious answer? Because it's possible for a true child of God to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That's a possibility. It's possible for a true child of God to be unwilling to stand for Christ. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And listen, Timothy was a pastor when Paul wrote that to him. He was pastoring in Ephesus. And Paul said, Timothy, don't be ashamed. And there was no use, for Paul, no use Paul writing that if that wasn't a possibility in Timothy's life. If it, let me say it this way. If it's utterly impossible, and this is a view that some Christians take, if it's utterly impossible for a true child of God to be ashamed of the Lord, then why in the world do you even write the verse? It's not even a possibility. But the fact that the verse was given to Timothy as an exhortation shows that it is possible for a genuine believer to be ashamed of the Lord or his devotion to the Lord. And it's even possible for a spiritual leader, a pastor like Timothy, to be ashamed. Now those of you who have been in situations where you've had to take a stand for Christ, you don't really need an explanation of this. Because you understand. I I can still remember so clearly. I was a sophomore in high school when I gave my life to Christ. I was on the football team, fairly popular, large school, 4,000 students, and I can remember very clearly thinking, I have to make a stand, and this isn't gonna be easy. The guys on the football team are gonna razz me, they're gonna make fun of me, people in class but i have to make a stand and it wasn't easy i still remember the very first day just like it was yesterday the first day i walked to the bus stop and i took with my textbooks my bible with me to school i thought should i put it under my textbook so it's kind of at least i'm taking it but i'm hiding it what do i do with this that was a struggle it wasn't easy and again, if you as a Christian have ever been in the position of having to take that kind of stand on a sports team, in, in school, at work, in your neighborhood, you know that's, that's not easy. It's not an easy thing to push through sometimes. We are, we are in danger of exactly what 2 Timothy 1.8 says we shouldn't do when it says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. It's possible for a true child of God to be unwilling to stand for Christ. Maybe that's you. If so, you need to understand that you are choosing, as verse 43 says here, to love the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's a tragic choice. To care more about what people think of you than what God thinks of you. That's a tragic choice. Now before we close, I think there's another important issue or principle for those of you who are really involved in ministry you're in spiritual leadership of some kind. And it comes right out of this whole passage, this whole story in John's gospel. And the Apostle Paul sums up and sets forth that principle in 2 Timothy 2. So let's turn there as we close over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And then in chapter 2, he gives him this exhortation. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he says this, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who who will be able to teach others also. I'm sure you've heard This verse taught on and used as an example for ministry because it's a great verse. You see four generations, Paul to Timothy, to faithful men, to others. You you see this chain, this continual uh, flow, and Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, if you want to maximize your ministry, if you really want to maximize your ministry long term, then take the things you've heard from me among many witnesses and commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And don't miss the word faithful. We don't have the insight that Jesus had and sometimes we will make a wrong assessment, but the principle this principle still applies for us today in ministry. When you're looking for someone to disciple, when you're looking for someone to pass the baton to, when you're looking for someone to pass on the vision, pass on the work, find a faithful man or faithful woman and invest yourself in that person. That's what Paul told Timothy to do. That's what Jesus did with his own men. And maybe that helps explain why he didn't commit himself to the believers in John 2.23. Let's bow as we close. Father, thank you for our time in the word and wrestling through these issues. And you know our own frailty and inability and just our limitations as we try to wrestle through your word and understand what it says and what it's not saying. And that's, that's what we've attempted to do in this message. And And, uh, Father, my prayer is that uh, everything that is accurate, according to your word, and true, that you would not let us forget it. But anything that was said that is inaccurate, not true, to your word, that you would cause us soon to forget it. Because we simply want to know and understand your word. We want to be like Jesus, live like Jesus, minister like Jesus. And we see, as Paul tells Timothy... that, that that involves strategic investment in the lives of others. Grant us the wisdom. Grant us the opportunity to minister in that way. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.